The Roman soldiers again protected Paul from the unruly riots, and they took him into custody at the nearby Antonia Fortress, the ruins of which you can see right behind me. There they chained him and they beat him until they discovered that he was a Roman citizen himself. The soldiers thought it best to then deliver him into the hands of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Judaism. Bad idea. When Paul defended himself to the Sanhedrin, he caused another violent uproar. This was the last straw. Hearing of a conspiracy to kill Paul, the Roman commander stationed at the Antonia Fortress stepped in and ordered Paul's evacuation from Jerusalem to Caesarea, the provincial seat of Roman government. This commander, known as a tribune in the 10th Roman Legion, was named Claudius Lysias. These guys prided themselves on control, and Claudius wasn't going to allow things to get out of hand. He would then let Marcus Antonius Felix, the procurator of the entire Judea province, deal with Paul. The Roman legions stationed here in the Judea province at the time of Acts was made up of about 5,000 soldiers. It was known as the Legio Decum Fritensis, or the 10th Legion of the Strait. The 10th Legion of the Strait had a long history of success, having been led by the likes of Caesar Augustus. Artifacts with the name and number of this legion, as well as its icons, the bull, boar, ship, and Neptune, have been found on artifacts discovered all over Judea and even in Jerusalem itself. Lysias was a military commander called a tribune. Each regular tribune was responsible for 12 centurions and up to 1,000 soldiers. There were six tribunes that served under the top general in the 10th Roman Legion. Roman legionary soldiers of the Empire period were typically equipped with armor of metal and leather, a shield, spears, a dagger, and a gladius. The gladius was the famous short sword of the Roman foot soldier. In Roman fashion, the soldiers were usually clean-shaven with short hair. The legionaries endured difficult training and faced harsh penalties for not serving properly. Punishment could be as severe as decimation, which was the act of killing 10% of an entire unit as an example to the others. Harsh stuff indeed, but it created a fierce and successful military. According to Acts chapter 23, Tribune Lysias was determined to get Paul out of Jerusalem, away from the angry mobs, and safely to Caesarea. The first leg of the journey was northwest through the rugged hill country between Jerusalem and Antipatris. In order to avoid the large crowds, Lysias rushed Paul off at night with a heavily armed contingent of 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 horsemen. After they arrived in Antipatris, the foot soldiers returned to Jerusalem and Paul continued on to Caesarea on horseback with the cavalry. There, the soldiers brought him before Governor Felix along with a letter from Lysias, which explained what was going on. This letter from Lysias told the Governor Felix, all the accusations that had been made against Paul, Paul the Apostle. And when he got the letter, Governor Felix decided to keep Paul in jail. 
and then invite those who were accusing him of all these crimes to come from Jerusalem. And chapters 23 and chapter 24 tells us what happened next. So let me review a little bit. We are going through the book of Acts on Sunday morning. The book of Acts is the story of what happened after Jesus died, came back to life again, and went to heaven. It was written by a doctor, a man named Luke, who said he had thoroughly researched all the things that had happened in the life of Jesus and in the life of the people who followed Jesus. And he wrote this letter. Uh, it was a book. We call it the book of Acts. And we've been going through it for several weeks. We're getting near the end right now. The lead character in the story is now the man Paul. He was formerly called Saul. He hated Christians, but then he became one. When he became one, he had a name change, he called himself Paul, the apostle, the sent one is what apostle means. And it's his story now as recorded by Luke. We're making our way towards the end. We're picking up with chapters 23 and 24 today. This is an all-church service, so we have children with us today. We do this about one out of every three Sundays, and we love to have the kids with us in church, in the big church, as sometimes it's called. So kids, you have your own notes, and uh, I'll be referring to them at a certain point. On the cover of your notes is a picture of Paul, this man Paul the Apostle, at trial, being on trial for some things he was accused of doing. So you go ahead and color that in now as I talk to the grown-ups. What happens next in the story? Let me read it to you. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator, a lawyer, named Tertullus. And these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Here's what they said about Paul. We have found this man to be a plague. How would you like that? <laughs> That's the accusation against you. You're a disease. We have found this man to be a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, we call ourselves today Christians, but in the early days after Jesus died and went to heaven, there were different names given to these people who followed Jesus. From the perspective of the Jews who did not become Christians, they were a sect. That means a small group like a cult that has bad teaching. They were the sect of the Nazarenes. Why Nazarenes? Because Jesus was from Nazareth. So those who followed him would have been Nazarenes. They were the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. They accused him of bringing a non-Jew into the temple, which was illegal. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded him to speak, answered this, Listen, they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd. I'm innocent, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Paul said, I'm innocent. I only got to Jerusalem 12 days ago. I didn't cause any riots. Bring in some eyewitnesses. They're lying. I didn't do any of these things. So he pleaded innocent. 
But in a, an amazing turn of events, he, he then pleads guilty, not to insurrection, but he then pleads guilty to another charge. What charge? He pleads guilty to being a Christian. Here's what he says. But this I confess to you. I'm guilty of this. That according to the way which they call a sect, this new Christian movement, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all that are written in the law and the prophets. And then Paul self-incriminates himself. He gives evidence to prove that he is a Christian. He said, guys, I didn't cause an insurrection, but you want to accuse me of being a follower of Jesus? Guilty. Matter of fact, you don't even have to do any research, send anybody to, to uh, find out. I'll confess I am a Christian, and I'll give you three evidences to prove I'm a Christian. Now, as I read this this week, I thought, wow, these three evidences of being a Christian really should be a part of all of our lives. These should be the three things that anybody could look at and say, is that guy a Christian? Oh, yeah. This, he believes this, he does that, he lives like that. He's a Christian. They should be no doubters. So I want to look at what these three evidences are of being a Christian today. And if these three things are really a part of your life, that's good. <laughs> that, that's clear as can be. You are a Christian. But if they're not, then you might want to really focus in on why they aren't. You might want to spend some time in prayer. You might want to spend some time in soul searching, saying, God, why aren't these evidences really clear in my life today? So we're going to look at them, and we're going to examine our lives to see if they are a part of our lives. So here's the first piece of evidence Paul gave to prove he was a Christian. He said this, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will, will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. The first piece of evidence is living with hope. That's the first piece of evidence that everybody should be able to look at our lives and say, is that guy Gary a Christian? Well, let me, let me examine him. Does he live with hope? Does he have hope that there is a life after this life? Does he live with hope when life gets tough and life hits him with all kinds of problems? Does he still have hope? Hope that this isn't all there is. My life's not going to end with these struggles and with death. That I'm going to live forever. I'm going to have a life beyond this life. I have hope of the resurrection of all the followers of Christ. Now, kids, go to your notes on the inside page. You'll see the word hope. Go ahead and color that now. So let me ask you, do you have hope? Do you live with hope that this life isn't all there is? When you get hit and slammed with all that life brings your way, does it hit you for a moment, but then it's like, oh, yeah, but you know what? So what? <laughs> when this life ends, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live forever with Jesus. I'm going to have a new body and a, and, and a new, new life where there's no sorrow and no, no pain and no death and no sin. Do you live with hope? If you don't, I have a remedy. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. I suggest you go there and you read these verses over and over again. You read them prayerfully. You read them with a heart open to say, God, give me the kind of hope right here that I read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Here's the kind of hope you're supposed to have as a Christian. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope, one that gets you up in the morning, one that gets you through your workday, one that gets you through all the struggles of life to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, he did. So you have hope that one day that's going to be you. That's your living hope that nobody can ever take away from you. You'll discover also in these verses that this hope can never be taken from you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who through his great mercy has caused us to obtain an inheritance in heaven, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You ever made a reservation to a hotel or a cruise line or something? And man, you thought you did it right. <laughs> you went online and yeah, I hit that button and I gave him my credit card. And you're so excited. You, you show up at the place, you're ready, you got your reservation. Maybe you got your kids with you. I did this for years. I got my three kids in tow, my wife. We got a reservation. We're going to Vail. We got the place we're going to stay. It's so fun. We saved our nickels and we saved our dimes and we're there. And I say to the guy at the counter, you have a reservation for Gary Beasley? How do you spell that last name? Your heart gets sick. B-E-A-S-L. Spell it again, please. Could it be spelled differently? Uh, what was it? When did you make the reservation? Uh, and finally he says, I'm sorry. And everything you hoped for for the little vacation is not going to work out. You try to find a Motel 6 nearby, but uh, they might be taken too. I think we've all had that disappointment when the hope is shattered and broken. But that's not the hope I'm talking about. That's not the hope that the scriptures talk about. Our hope is real. Our hope will never fade away. Our hope is that when this life ends, eternal life goes on and on forever. There's a second thing Paul said. There's a second thing that stood out as evidence that he was a Christian. And really, it's summed up in the word integrity. So put up that next fill-in, please, the word integrity. And kids, on the inside of your notes, I put the word goodness there because integrity is really, uh, part of it is, is living a life with being good like God wants you to be. I'm trying to give a description of what integrity is. Integrity is the quality of being honest, of having strong moral principles, of being morally upright. One of the best definitions I heard this week is integrity means being the same person when you're alone that you are when you're around other people. I'd like to even add to that. Integrity is being the same person in church that you are outside of church. Paul said it this way. 
I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. You know, the second evidence that someone is a Christian is that they take seriously having a clear conscience towards God and towards others. Not that they're perfect. Christians are are never perfect. But they take this whole issue of sin and integrity very seriously. They give it their best shot. They really want to do whatever God wants them to do. And if they don't, if they fail, if they sin, they take repentance seriously. They say, oh, God, I, I, I did the wrong thing, and I don't want to do the wrong thing, and forgive me, and Lord, uh, get me back on the path of doing the right thing again. It's the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. It's every Christian should have this evidence in their life. They really don't want to sin. And when they do sin, they really are sorry they sin. And they really try to live differently. There's something about their lifestyle that stands out. So how do you live with a clear conscience? Well, it goes like this. You don't do the things that the Bible says we should not do. Pretty simple. There's a whole bunch of things in the scripture that says, Thou shalt not. If you're a King James person, thou shalt not. You should not steal. You should not lie. You should not cheat. You should not covet. And when you read something in the Bible that God doesn't want you to do, you take it seriously. You don't just say, well, that's a suggestion. That's for somebody else. You say, man, Lord, that that is how you want me to live my life. And you know what? I really want to try to live my life that way. There's a bunch of other things in the Bible that it says you should do. And when you read those, you take those seriously as well. Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. It says you should honor your father and mother. Now, if you're a Christian, when you read that, it's like, man, I really want to honor my father and mother. If you're not a Christian, I don't care. I'll sass them back. I'll do whatever I want to do. It doesn't matter to me. It says other things we ought to do. It says, husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, you should honor your husbands. Now, if you weren't a Christian, you just blow that off too. I don't care what that says. My husband, I'm not going to honor him. No, not if I'm a Christian. I am going to honor him. And if I'm a Christian, I'm going to try to love my wife, give it my very best shot. And then whenever things aren't clearly commanded or uh, forbidden by Scripture, there are things that we call like gray areas. I take those seriously too. Every Christian should. Like, should I be doing that kind of thing? Lord, is that what you want me to do? And if I have doubts about it, I, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. So integrity, clear conscience, moral uprightness, goodness, these should be evidence of a Christian, should they not? When you see someone who says they're a Christian, isn't this the first thing you normally do is you watch how they live? Don't we do that? Yeah. And if we're not living like maybe we think Christians should live, then that's something we need to be seeking God about too. There's a third evidence in here about being a Christian. It's a third evidence that anybody should watch our lives and say, yep, that shows me that that person is a Christian. And the third piece of evidence Paul gave it is giving with a generous heart. 
Here's what he said in Acts chapter 24. Now, after many years, I came to Jerusalem to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Being generous with your time, generous with your gifts that you help people with, generous with whatever you have, should be something that every Christian does. It's evidence of being a Christian. Can you imagine somebody said they were a Christian and they were stingy, stingy when they, you asked them for help? No way. My time is my time. Stingy with their gifts, stingy with their resources. You would say, you're supposed to be a Christian? Christians aren't like that. And no, they shouldn't be. Generosity is the evidence someone is a Christian. Let me read you some scriptures. 2 Corinthians 9.13, your giving proves the reality of your faith. Philemon chapter 1 verse 6, you are generous because of your faith. Generosity is evidence that someone honors God. 2 Corinthians 9.13, you will be glorifying God through your generous gifts. Your generosity will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. Generosity is evidence that someone wants to live close to God. Deuteronomy 14.23, the purpose of giving is to teach you to always put God first in your life. Matthew 6.21, your heart will be wherever your treasure is. Generosity is evidence that someone serves God. Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both God and money. And generosity is evidence that someone has put his hope in God. 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be generous willing to share. In this way, they will take hold of the life that is true life. Somebody moves in next to you, you get to meet them, they say, I'm a Christian. Okay, easy to say that. How would you know they were a Christian? Well, a lot of ways, but three in particular. And Paul gave them. Do they live as if they have hope? that there is a life to come? Or do they live as if this world ends in a slow ride in a hearse? Do they try to live with integrity, tell the truth, be honest, be faithful, do the things the Scripture says and, and not do the things the Scripture doesn't say? And if they mess up, do they ask forgiveness quickly? Hmm. And number three, are they a generous person? I mean, would you feel comfortable even knocking on their door and saying, hey, I need some help. Can you help me with some sugar? Or would you think, oh, uh, that guy's not going to give me a cup of sugar or whatever it is you need. That guy makes me a little nervous to ask him anything. But forget the neighbor. What about you? If you were the neighbor and you told someone you were a Christian, would they see these three things in your life? Matter of fact, I want to end with this question. Would you pull it up, please? If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Or would there be a trial and they finally say, you know, I don't think he really is. We'll let him off this time. Or would it be like a slam dunk case? All they got to do is bring in 
your relatives, a few neighbors, the guys you work with, and they'll hear about four of those stories, and they'll say, guilty, this guy is a Christian. Would you close your eyes, and I want to lead you through a time of prayer as we think about that question. Worship team, would you make your way to the front? If you were accused of being a Christian, honestly, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What about living your life with hope? If people were to hear you talk all the time, do they hear you talk about hope? Or is the majority of the things you say, woe is me, and how terrible life is, and is there enough evidence that you live your life with integrity? Or could they bring in the key witnesses who say, that guy, I don't see it. Is there evidence that you live your life generously? Your time, your talents, and your treasure. That you are generous with other people in need. Father, would you work in our lives, God? God, some of us listening from home and some of us here in the auditorium we are Christians. We do believe in Jesus. But the evidence of that, Lord, it's lacking right now. And God, I pray that that would not be the case anymore. And Lord, I pray for those watching and those in the auditorium who aren't Christians. God, help them. Reveal to them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then, Lord, in believing that, let them have an experience of being born from above, changed. And, God, let these evidences then be rich and powerful in their lives. Amen.